Well, hey there, church. Uh, today we find ourselves in the fireside room at the lower part of our church building. And it's an important room for us because of this. This room transforms all the time. It changes. And on any given day, it might be used for uh, NHY, our youth services, or it might be used for a quilter's ministry, or it might be used for a group of artists that are down here. In fact, it's used uh, often for hospitality and events of every different type and nature. This is a room that is designed to change. And that's important because that idea of change is something that makes me think about all of you. We are now seven months into this COVID odyssey together as a church and what we've been walking through, all the changes, all the things that are different, things that weren't how they used to be, that aren't how they used to be. And, uh, and I think of all of you and how you have graciously embraced the changes. I've watched folks give online for the first time ever, folks engage in small groups where they didn't used to do that, folks really reach out to Jesus in a new way personally because of the struggles and the challenges of this time. And I've also watched so many of you be so gracious to us as we try to navigate these changes and because none of us have been here before. And yet there's been support and there's been love and there's been grace amidst all the uncertainty. And so I just wanted to thank you for that. That has been a beautiful thing, a beautiful picture of what it means to be willing to change. Which points us to the subject of our message today, which is all about change, but not just any sort of change. It's really about the most important change of all, but also the change that is probably most difficult. Because today we talk about what it means to allow God to change me. So this last weekend I was mowing my yard and it was uh, wet that day. The yard was wet and so the lawn was real messy when I mowed it and, and it's sticking in the lawnmower and all of that. And so after it was done, as I always do, I get out the blower and I'm cleaning off everything, the, the driveway, and, and I was doing the front porch and I'm, I'm, I'm getting it all cleaned off with the blower. And as I'm doing that, I keep running in to, to bits of wet grass. I'm like, where, where is this coming from? It's nowhere near the lawn. It's just, it's, it's messy and it's all over the place. I'm like, what is this doing on the front porch? There's no reason for there to be wet grass here. Where is this coming from? And then I looked down at my shoes. And I'd been mowing in these shoes, not these shoes, but the shoes I was wearing that whole time. And they had been filled with wet, muddy grass. And it was getting all over the place that I was. I realized that it wasn't what was there that was the problem. It was what I was taking with me. See, I think that's certainly part of the nature of what God is trying to point to for all of us in this time, that there's some things he wants to address that we bring with us. And so it has been my prayer, God, would you change me? Would you change all of us? Could we allow Jesus to do a new work in us personally in this time where we have in this series, we've been pushing against our culture who has wanted us to be at a greater distance from God and a greater distance from each other. But today we close that loop and we address what it looks like to actually draw close to ourselves, close to the person that God has made us to be. This idea comes out of a statement that is found in the end of the passage that has been the fulcrum for this series. It's Matthew 22. Let's read it again, verses 35 to 40. Big voices, go. 
One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It's those two words at the end that catch me. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Huh. Love your neighbor in the way that you would want to be loved. It, it, in some ways, it reminds us of the golden rule to treat others as you would want to be treated. But the problem is, when it comes to my ability to love myself, to desire good for myself, that ability is often clouded. It's often broken. It's often out of balance. The truth is, I don't always have a healthy view of what love looks like, which means I can be mistaken in what it looks like to love myself. In fact, if I'm honest, among the hardest people to love is me, because I know me. And, and I believe parts of the deep work that Jesus is trying to address in all of us in this time is to get us to stop and actually address this deeply personal place of how I view who God made me to be, of how I see myself. Now, I know for most of us, if we are to see ourselves how God sees us, it is going to require one very important word. It's gonna require change. So what does it look like for me to change? We're good at asking our circumstances to change, our governments to change, our workplaces to change. I want the weather to change, but I think there is a greater change that we are perhaps less likely to ask for. God, how do I change? Paul and I have now been married 26 years. And this doesn't happen often, but every now and then I will come into the room and it will feel just a little bit cold in the room. If you know what I mean, your spouse is just a little bit cold and I'll, I'll maybe try to test the water. So, so how's, this, how's it going today? Fine. Hmm. Uh, nice day out there, huh? I guess so. Are you enjoying that book? It's okay. Did I mention my kidneys are shutting down? Hmm. Good luck with that. You just feel a bit of the ice. You know what I mean? You've had that kind of experience. And so I'm left with this decision. I could just continue about my day, tell myself she's absorbed in, in something else, global events, maybe Animal Crossing. Uh, just don't worry about it. But the truth is I realize that whatever's going on there probably is connected to something I did or didn't do, which leaves me in this tension. I could just go on about my day, work in the garage, watch TV, do nothing, or I could ask the question that I really don't want to ask, really three little words, what's wrong, dear? And then I await the flood of answers that opens the door to a conversation that takes roughly 60 to 90 minutes, and it usually brings to clarity an opportunity for personal growth for me as a husband. And to be honest with you, there are days that I don't want to ask that question. I know something's wrong, but I would rather just pretend everything's all right. I think the same desire is often true when it comes to taking a hard look at ourselves. 
So today we discuss this ongoing task of getting close enough to ourselves to address what's really going on inside. You know, the French, they speak of this disease, which they call la maladie du moi. It is the me sickness. The truth of the gospel reminds us that we are all born with a me sickness, a sickness not of bone and muscle, but a sickness of soul and spirit, a sickness that we know as sin. We see it from the very beginning of our lives. It's, it's very easy to see. In fact, one great example is you never see parents have to teach their kids how to throw a tantrum, do you? You never see them have to train them how to do that. No, it just comes out of them naturally. You never see a parent kind of sit their child down. Hey, Johnny, today we're going to learn how to throw a fit. It's going to be great. So we're going to start with, you're going to wail as though someone drove a nail through the top of your foot. That's where we're going to begin. And then I want you to throw the cereal bowl across the room, making sure to, to just drench my pants in the process. And then I want you to say over and over and over, I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want that at ever increasing volumes, then I want you to throw yourself on the ground like a beach beluga whale and just pound on the floor for a while, all while the snot engulfs your entire face in a bubble until it pops. Can we do that, little Johnny? Let's start. Now, I know that's a lot of information, so let's just start at the top with the whale. Let's make sure it's piercing, shall we? Ready, Johnny? Go. No parent ever has to do that. We don't have to teach our child how to throw a fit. It comes out of us naturally. It's just part of it. Now, maybe in time, we get better at managing that as grown-ups, right? But the sin doesn't go away. It just puts on new clothes. It gets wrapped up in grown-up rationalization. It gets hidden beneath accomplishment. It gets overlooked by good intentions. And the one question we don't want to stop and ask ourselves is what's wrong in here? And yet if there's something that God wants to invite all of us to in this time, it's to ask that very question. What's wrong in here with me, God? In the words of King David, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God calls us to ask the hard question of ourselves. What's wrong in me? How, God, do you see me today? Now, only we can ask that question and only God can answer that question. But the reason we do so is because it's in that answer that God can set us free free to live the life he actually created us for. That is the goal of getting closer to who God has called us to be. Now, the question is, how do we do that? Well, here's the first thing I'd point out. Number one, we get to admit our problem. I get to admit my problem. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. This is what it says. Let's read it together. Big voices go. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now that's where we're going to stop for a second, okay? It says, you who were once. It's implying that for the Christ follower, a change has taken place. 
where I was once hostile to God, I'm not anymore. I've actually said yes to this reconciliation, to this agreement with God. However, the problem is this is not a one-time event. We must continue to ask this question. Where am I hostile towards you, God, and why? See, everything is rearranged when God comes into our lives. You ever notice that, that in the Bible, when God shows up, often earthquakes happen? <laughs> Stuff shakes when God shows up? Isaiah in the Old Testament has a vision of God. It says, the temple shook. Elijah on the mountain, the mountain quaked when he interacted with God. The disciples in the book of Acts in the upper room, the room itself was shaken. Guess what? All of us are going through a shaking right now. And I know that God wants to show up in this. Because when God shows up, everything changes. God actually shakes us because God wants for us to be more than just an accessory in our life, like a bell for a bicycle. He wants to be more than that for us. God wants to actually be our life. He, he then adjusts our life, and that is at times a very unsettling feeling. You know, uh, years ago when I was a little kid, we went to a family re reunion in Colinga, California. And it would probably tell you a lot about my family because I think there were several guys looking for dates there. But anyway, it was that kind of reunion. It was a fun time. And I remember we're staying in Colinga, California. And um, it was the middle of the night. And there was an earthquake. And I'd never been in an earthquake. I, I can remember the, the things on the shelves shaking and some of them falling down. And, and, and we didn't know when it would stop. We didn't know what would happen next. We didn't know if the earth would open up. And it was like, can this possibly be happening? Is this real? Now, now gratefully, it was just a, a small earthquake. No one got hurt. But now when I look back at that, that trip, that is the one thing I remember about that whole experience was this shaking, this earthquake, because it was the shaking that woke us up. God's shaking in our life right now, it has the same kind of purpose. He wants to wake us up. See, before God can ever make us, we must first allow God to shake us. So are we allowing what is so unstable in our world to help us address what is actually unstable in our hearts. Are we saying to God, would, would you look at my life? Would you look at my heart? Would you show me where I've opposed you? Where I've been hostile to you? Where I've tried to make my life into an image other than yours? Where I've actually settled for religion instead of relationship with you? And we take that honest look at ourselves, and then we say, God, would you do whatever you need to do in order to make me whole? If you saw your life as a house, which rooms would you actually invite God into? Some people kind of prefer God at the, the back porch of their lives. You know, they don't want the neighbors to know that they know God. So you can just come to the back porch. We'll hang out there. If you can park around the corner, that would be great. We don't want people to see your car. Some people, that's how they approach God. 
Others kind of like inviting God into the living room of their lives. You know, it's easy. It's always tidied up. It doesn't get messed up. It's a good place to have guests. You can even watch the game there in the living room, but make sure you leave after the game is over. We don't want you sort of hanging around. But what about the tougher rooms in our house? Do, do we invite God into those places? Do we invite God to the bedroom of our lives, a place of vulnerability, a, a place where we gain identity and sexuality and, and those things, expressions of that kind of intimacy? Do we let God into those places? Do we let God into the bathrooms of our lives, these places where they get rid, rid of the waste of our lives, those things that are killing us? Do we allow God to speak to those things? Do we let God open the closets of our lives? The place we stuff away and try to forget about. That's what closets are for. Are some rooms with God off limits in our lives? Perhaps some of us would even say, you know, the only place I really want God in my life is just on the porch. I don't even want him in. And God is just on the porch of our lives and he's just standing at the door and knocking. See, there's so many places God still wants to redeem. We must remember this. God's goal is not to reconcile some of me. God's goal is to reconcile all of me, meaning all of who I am. Now, how does he do that? Well, here's one way that God does it. There's an old-time minister who was once asked, how do you start a revival in a city? And this is what he said. He said, you go home, you go into a room, you close the door behind you, you kneel on the floor and you take chalk and you draw a circle around you and you ask God to bring revival to everything in that circle. And that's how you start to bring revival to your city. You know what I believe God is doing in COVID? He's making us go to our rooms and draw a circle around us and asking us to pray for revival for everything in that circle. We know that God is shaking the world. The question is, will we let God shake us? We must invite all of who God is to all of who we are. So I get to admit my problem. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. I get to accept God's solution. Let's continue in the passage. Colossians 1.22. We pick it up. Ready, go. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He is reconciled. Meaning that God is the one who is acting here. God is the one who is moving. We are still the ones in need. God is the medic on the battlefield crawling towards us. We are the wounded soldiers in the foxhole. We will never fully understand God's reconciliation until we realize that we could never reconcile ourselves. I can't fix me. I can't see my own blind spots. St. Augustine said it this way, if you think you can organize your own salvation, you are magnifying the very sin that keeps you from it. To believe that you are the captain of your own life is to suffer the sin of pride. 
that the moment I think that I can somehow save myself is the moment I reinforce that I am lost in arrogance. Let's face it. We just don't deal with our own sin very well. Here's what we do. We, we find ourselves in a pattern of sin. Maybe it's lying. Maybe it's addiction. Maybe it's anger. And we say to ourselves, I know how I'll fix it. I will focus on that thing and I'll just stop doing that. Willpower, right? I'll just stop doing that. I'll just focus on that anger. I'll just stop doing that. Forgetting that we ultimately become what we focus on. So if I'm living to say, I'm just not going to get angry anymore, I'm not going to get angry, I'm just going to focus, I want to make sure I don't get angry, what ends up happening? I get angry. Now part of dealing with sin is saying no to it, resist the devil and he will flee, but that's only half the solution. Our complete solution is to in one moment say no to our sin and yes to our Savior. Just saying no to things does not automatically default me to where I want to go. Here's an example. Like if I want to go to Washington, D.C., I don't automatically get, end up there by not going to Missouri. Okay? Now, I would always recommend not going to Missouri, but that doesn't mean I end up getting to Washington, D.C., right? I could end up in a lot of places that aren't Washington, D.C. by just saying I'm not going to Missouri. It's the same when it comes to sin. So we say no to sin, absolutely, but that will be short-lived until we say yes to Jesus, where I'm going, that we focus on him. Because we become what we focus on. This then allows Jesus to do what we can't do, which is to actually begin to make the same person on the inside that everyone thinks we are, on the outside. See, this is where often we are gravely out of balance. I remember in elementary school, we had uh, teeter-totters. Some of you remember teeter-totters. I think they're outlawed now, but we had them when I was in elementary school. It's a, it's a big metal kind of plate, long uh, stick kind of plate on a fulcrum. And uh, you, kids would get on both ends and they'd teeter-totter up and down. And the ones that we had in my school, I, rec I don't know how tall they were. They seemed gigantic to me, like 20 feet high when you're up in there. They seemed just massive. They probably weren't. But when you're a little kid, it just seems so high. Now, as a first grader, I remember not really understanding the laws of physics that well. And so sometimes like a fifth grader would say, hey, you want to do the teeter-totter with me? And I'd be like, great, that sounds super fun. I can't believe a fifth grader is asking me to do that. And so the fifth grader would get on, giant fifth grader, tiny little me first grader, and I would immediately just end up in the air, right? Kind of the Simba of shame move. I'm just up there. And they did it on purpose. So the fifth grader would just sit there. And I was just stuck up in that place. And the fifth grader's like eating his lunch, like answering his calls. And I'm just stuck up here. I have nowhere to go, right? It's a horrible experience. You're exposed to the world. It's embarrassing. And then if they're a really mean fifth grader, they wouldn't sort of let you down easy. They would just jump off at the teeter-totter. And you would go careening down at Mach 1 right into the ground, compressing your spine, bruising your tailbone in the process, leading me to this slow dismount. And I just kind of traverse outside off of that place with this bow-legged cowboy walk of regret. It was a very painful experience for me. I am now convinced that I would be taller and my voice would be lower had I not spent time on teeter-totters. All the result 
of the weight on one side not being equivalent to the weight on the other. Friends, we live in an externally focused culture, a culture focused on accomplishment and ability and outward appearance. We tend to not ask the tough questions of what's happening internally, what's happening in my soul and my sin and my eternity. So much weight is put on the external, very little weight is put on the internal, and we wonder why people right now, both Christian and non-Christian, are falling to the ground and crashing. It's because we're out of balance. There is an inequity in us that if it's not resolved, we end up hurt, we lose, we crash. And if it's not today, it will be someday. And the only solution is recognizing that I'm in desperate need of a Savior to reconcile me, to put me back in agreement with him. So I must then acknowledge my need to, to ask for help. It's only when I discover all that I'm not that I truly understand all that God is. The answer is this brutal honesty that leads to a reliance on Jesus that is new. That it's only when I recognize how sick I am that the healer is unable to make me well. Tim Keller said it this way, he said, it's the grace of God that reveals to us that in one moment we discover we are more wicked than we ever dared to believe and more loved and affirmed than we ever dared to hope. That in Jesus, it's not one or the other, you're good or you're bad, you're a sinner or you're a saint. That in Jesus, we're both truly desperate and truly broken, truly redeemed and truly whole. We experience that when we experience God's solution. It's the second thing. Here's the last thing. Lastly, if we're gonna get closer to who God made us to be, we get to learn to allow for God's process. Colossians 1, verse 23, let's read it together. Big voices go. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. It says, continue in the faith. Though bombs go off all around me, I keep walking. I'm compelled to move forward in my hope in Christ. This speaks of a life of steady progression in God's process in the midst of a very precarious world. There will be times, folks, and you know this, that, that we don't like the steps we're having to take. And this right now in our world is one of those times. I don't like this terrain. I don't like the weather on this road. I don't like what this looks like. And so I really sometimes it's like I just want to stop walking. I don't want to go this path anymore. But it's there that I choose to take steps of faith alone. We must never allow the world's problems to keep us from God's process. That the world would make us bail out because I guarantee this world will try to give you reasons to give up on God. 
There will be hurts and wounds. There will be misunderstandings and disappointments. There will be wildfires and pandemics. This is life in a fallen world. And Jesus says, that must never be a reason to stop walking with me. We are to be stable and steadfast with him in this process. With God, we say yes to a process that will one day have an end so we can experience a relationship that will never end. So we have to see our life differently. That this, yes, is today's storm, but it won't always be like this. And Kang, we will make it to the other side with him. My wife, Paula, she, uh, she looks very, very young for her age. And in fact, often people don't realize how old she is. She's actually 107 years old. Can you believe that? It's just amazing. Uh, no, actually, she's, uh, she's going to kill me. Uh, no, she's 52 this year is how old she is. And people, when they find that out, are still amazed at her. You know, like, man, I can't believe. I thought you were, you know, nowhere past 40. They just think she looks so young. And that, that's a great thing now, but it wasn't always great for her in her life. When she was younger, it was sort of a, a bummer for her because she'd be like in her 20s and she'd be a camp counselor and people would be sending her back to her room because they thought she was a middle school camper, you know, or she'd be driving. They're like, hey, 12 year old, get out of that car. She's like, I'm 22. What's the problem? So it wasn't helpful in her early days to look so young. Same life, same gift, this gift of looking young, but depending on where she was in the process, that determined how she felt about that gift at that time. What she hated then, she now loves. It changed. God's process is a lot like that. We may not like today, but if we're steadfast and stable with him, we can experience the reward tomorrow. Too often, we allow our feelings to determine our truth. We must allow truth to determine our feelings. In the midst of a changing world, and in the midst of a constantly, hopefully changing us, remember, Jesus never changes. So we get to say yes every day to his process for us. I'll wrap up with this. Uh, several years ago, we had this washing machine that, that stopped working. It stopped doing the little turny thing in the middle. So clothes weren't getting washed. It didn't drain well. It was just, it was just broken. It didn't work. And so we determined well, we're going to get a whole new set, washer and dryer set at that time. So pulled out the old washer and then pulled out the dryer. And I noticed something when I pulled out the dryer, which was working. I had no reason to pull out the dryer except we were getting a new set. I looked at the back of the dryer when I pulled it out where it was plugged in and, and the power things were going in with the screws that pulled down the power thing. And I realized that that dryer had at some point caught fire right where the electrical came into it, right where the wire leads went into it. And it was all, it was all charred and it was all burned and it was actually fused to the dryer. And, and I realized at first I was just so bummed about having to buy a new wash and dryer and it's a pain to bring this thing out of here and I got to reinstall it and, and it's costly and all that stuff. I was so bummed about having to do that. But when I saw that dryer, I realized that had I not pulled that dryer out and gone through that whole process, I would have never known that there was this danger right behind it. 
This danger that could very well have caught that dryer on fire and maybe the home and, and put my family in danger. All of that was possible with this thing that I never knew was back there until I had to pull it out because of this, this other one. And I came to the realization that for me, what was this time that was filled with inconvenience and it was filled with hassle and it was filled with cost, it was actually the very thing that might have saved us. What felt like a death to me was a pathway to life. Maybe all the fires, that both literal and figurative around us, are part of God waking us up to protect us from something that is even more devastating within. That we come to this place where God can literally save our lives. I think for so long, uh, especially before COVID, the, the world in some ways, it, it seemed easier back then, right? We could do what we want to do. We had all, all this freedom. We didn't have all these things going on around us. It, it seemed easy. We could just kind of move forward and we could kind of succeed in the world in, in a real way. And yet I'm reminded of what Jesus said, that, that what if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul? Maybe that's part of what was happening. And maybe that's what Jesus is trying to change today. Then in the midst of all this, he's pointing out something that could lead to our destruction if we don't address it. Something inside in our hearts. So today is our chance to begin this all-important work of inviting God to Look at what's going on inside. That if we'll come to him in honesty and in humility and with a heart to change, that we won't miss the life that God wants to bring us. That we can get close to the God who made us and closer to who God made us to be.